from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Taylor. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. I've been on the bike, and I went out and did a night ride the other night. I picked up a buddy of mine at 7 o'clock at night, and we were all lit up, and we took off and rode over Griffith Park in Los Angeles, and uh, such a great experience. You know, we rode about 30 miles. It was cold out. It was beautiful. You know, you get home, and you're high. You know, somebody said if exercise could be put in a pill, it would be the most prescribed medication of all. I would take it. So I don't have to exercise. I could just <laughs> take the pill. <laughs> I'm going to do my uh, street librarian's ride tomorrow. So, And I, what I, is that? Oh, we ride around and donate books to little free library boxes. And, and do you ever we, take any when you when you stop by and say, oh, sure. I haven't read that one? All the time. But um, now I'm told we have too many books, so I have to give more than I take. Can you have too many books? I don't know that you can. That's an ongoing topic for discussion here. Only only if you move do you have too many books. <laughs> That's the problem. Having to pack them all up in a box and put them in the back of a car or something and drive them across town. Uh, that's what we did. We moved from LA wow. with all these books. We got a good show. First, we have the news. We've been talking about riding and being safe on the road. And we talked about ghost bikes and ghost tires. On Saturday, January 27th, Damon Kepit, who is the director of Safe, Streets Are For Everyone, guest on the show many times, is going to conduct another die-in on the steps of Los Angeles City Hall. Last year, we did it, and we had a couple of hundred people all splayed out on the steps of City Hall. We had a lot of press there. It was really nice. And it's just a wake-up call for people learning about traffic violence, about what people who are not encased in automobiles are subject to when they try to run their daily errands on the streets of San Francisco or Los Angeles or any other you know, city around the country. In another bit of news from New York City, there's a new minimum wage for delivery workers, for deliveristas. They're judge That's a great affirmed, term, Nick. Yeah. I've never heard that term before. We've done interviews with the union that was working to unionize deliveristas in New York City, and I guess they succeeded. Right. There's now this minimum hourly pay for New York City food delivery workers, $17.96 an hour before tips for Uber, Grubhub, and DoorDash workers. Well, we have a guest on the show today, Nick, who's been on a couple of times in the past, Bella Chu. Bella is the Associate Director at DataCore of the Population Health Sciences at Stanford University. She might have some insight. Bella, welcome to Bike Talk again. Thank you. Uh, so excited to be here. It remains to be seen what impact this is going to have, but it's a really interesting natural experiment. So if you think about the that people in general respond to incentives, right? And so when you're a gig worker who's under immense pressure and paid by the piece for, you know, piece or delivery or whatever word you want to use, you're under a huge amount of pressure to work really fast. If you're barely making enough to survive, you got to really hustle, run lights, break rules, things like this. If you have a living wage as a base, as a ground floor, it is possible that this will really positively affect behavior because they're no longer under these huge incentives to like go really fast and break rules. If the wage is not sufficient, 
if there are still big incentives to like deliver a lot of pieces, like if there are still really big bonuses or things like that to deliver more, uh, that could override this minimum wage. But if this is a living wage, it has the potential to really positively affect behavior with respect to safety. Uh, and we see this all throughout the 20th century. Um, Jesse Singer has a fantastic book on this called There Are No Accidents, that basically the history of, of occupational safety in America has been getting companies to implement policies and procedures which protect their employees. And every time they do that, you see injuries come way down. And so my hope wow. is something like a minimum living wage. Again, it has to be a living wage or or we may not see these benefits. It does seem likely that this will improve uh, safety of both the deliveristas themselves, especially, and then anyone who's sort of in their path. Will someone from Stanford University Data Course study this or, or who's going to study this? Or will we just wait for a year or two to see if the stats change? So unfortunately, all studies take a long time. Like the latency period on academic research is really long. It takes about six to 12 months uh, adjudication period for any kind of like uh, administrative health data. Given that that data exists and is available, then you have to apply for it. That often can take months. And then at that point, you have to study it rigorously and then publish, you know, account for every other potential cause of, of any effect you see, and then publish in a peer-reviewed journal. So unfortunately, the, the uh, latency period of academic research is very long. However, if there's a large effect size, we're immediately going to see it. Bicyclist fatalities is probably where it would first show up if the effect size is large. Right. Bicycle fatalities and serious injuries are at an all-time high in yep. cities like New York and Los yep. Angeles and yep. San Francisco. So yep. hopefully those numbers will come down quickly. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Again, if the effect size, if, if this is effective and the effect size is large because deliveristas are a large fraction of cyclists, you should see an effect in that number early. If the effect size is smaller or it's more complex than that, it may show up in a year or two. And you know, what's crazy is we often hear about the traffic death of a middle-aged white cyclist who's out riding in the park, but we don't always hear about the death of a gig worker or of a, a day laborer who was using their bicycle to get to and from work or for work. So hopefully this will really affect that population and make it safer for them on the roads. Absolutely. It's a, it's a much more vulnerable population. So my hope is that this will really improve safety for them. And, you know, anything that improves safety for one group of road users in almost all cases improves safety for everybody. That seems to right. be a law of, of road safety. Do we know, Nick, is this going to raise the price of takeout food a lot or takeout services a lot? I mean, raising the minimum wage to $17? Your guess is as good as mine. Bella, do you have any thoughts on that? Is, is there any kind of data that says when you raise the minimum wage in a certain area of, of employment that how it affects the, the services sure. outcome? I don't know. You know, it could potentially impact the price of that service a little bit. That said, every policy has trade-offs. And if the trade-off is that a wealthy person ordering food from a restaurant has to pay a dollar or two more for their takeout so that somebody doesn't die or get grievously injured, that's a really good trade-off. And that's a good policy that is completely appropriate and just. And 
I think a trade-off as a society we should absolutely be willing to make. And, and you could maybe even argue that the death of those kinds of gig workers raises the price of those products anyways. Grubhub has to have higher insurance or, I mean, I don't know the I don't specifics. Know, yeah, I don't know that. I think we have to acknowledge that anytime you do have these kinds of policies, there are those kinds of trade-offs. And one thing I really want to push back on is this idea that that saving a few bucks or a motorist saving 30 seconds or or a minute is worth someone's life. Like right. saving somebody's life, is a dollar or two is a pretty good value. Um, that's right. worth it. Um, and so even if I had to pay a dollar or two more for my clothing or my delivery or whatever, if it means somebody has a living wage in a safe work environment, I think that's a really good trade-off. Right. It's funny that you say that motorist saving 30 seconds, because Nick, that brings us to the next topic we want to talk about, right? Mm. Yeah. Well, the whole theme of the show is the irony of people waiting in their cars for things which really seem not to be very worth it. And then to experience road rage if they're delayed by a few seconds behind somebody riding a bike. Right. And we have a couple examples that have been posted. One was by you, Belichu. It's always funny what gets a lot of reaction versus, you know, I'll do these like carefully worded, very thoughtful, what I think are instructive posts and they'll, they'll hardly get any visibility. And then I'll just kind of like pop off and thousands of likes. Anyway, I saw a, you know, a picture of hundreds of cars lined up to see the Christmas lights. I don't think people, and particularly Americans, appreciate the degree to which cars have subsumed every aspect of our culture. And, you know, kind of a common sort of uh, idea in the right wing or the conservative mind is, quote, the pod. And I think what's imagined with that is limitation, is a degrading of quality of life, is limited space, you know, all these kinds of things. And I'm like, really the the car is the pod cars devour our time they devour our money they devour space in cities they've degraded the beauty and the quality and the walkability and the safety of our cities they devour our health they they both supplant walking uh human beings evolved to walk five to ten kilometers a day and they've displaced that at the population level the blunt force trauma from cars kills 45,000 people a year, injures 5.4 million. Particulate matter from the tailpipes kills 52,000 people a year. They kill more people out the back end than they do out the front end. This is just in the United States? Yeah, this is the U.S. Yeah, millions wow. worldwide. I mean, it's crazy worldwide. Yeah. But the U.S. Is, is a dumpster fire unto itself. People don't even think about it. And so if you think about something like going to see Christmas lights, and it was really funny because, you know, kind of um, contemporary with that post was this post of like beautiful Christmas villages and Christmas scenes from European cities. Right. American towns and villages and cities used to be every bit as beautiful as European cities that we pay hundreds of dollars to fly and see. They were dense. They were charming. They had gingerbread. They were wonderful, quiet, quiet well-served by transit. Like America was just as pretty, but we demolished our cities and towns and hollowed them out for cars uh, after World War II. So I think what I wish people understood is like, if we could build places for people, you would be able to enjoy that beauty and that charm and the quiet of the winter night 
and smell the snow and the crisp, clean air every day. And instead, right. you're stuck in a pod waiting in line for arguing hours. with your family. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the pleasant evening, even if it's right. a pleasant evening, it right. is not as good or as cheap or as wonderful as it would be if you got to walk along that street and see it. Um, well, if this were a, a, a Hallmark movie, you know, yeah. everyone would be walking and singing yeah. and serving hot chocolate and yeah. the older people would be mingling with the young people and there'd be a Santa Claus and it would be beautiful. But instead, you're right, it's a traffic jam. Yeah. And and I think that's something I really wish people understood, like the idealized vision we have of like beauty and community and cities and towns and villages, these walkable, beautiful gingerbread coated, like warm storefronts, that used to be America. We used right. to have that. And when you prioritize cars, their, their throughput and their storage over walking, biking and transit, you hollow all that out. You lose all that. And I don't think people really understand what we've lost by prioritizing cars over people. Right. They watch Hallmark movies. You know, those are like these super popular, different movie every night takes right. place in a small town. We have given that away to car storage. Well, and it's really funny because there are still like vestiges of it. Um, you know, I went to Grass Valley, California, and it still has this wonderful main street, you know, in that old charming style. But like that is illegal to build now. Like we can never replicate it under current yeah. laws, but it's beloved. Like every city in town, the most beloved, popular, financially productive areas of any city or town are the areas that are built in that old style. Right. Property value goes up with your walkable score goes up. It's yeah. crazy to think that you'd sit in a, a half hour, hour long traffic line just to look at some lights through the window of your car with the heat on and uh, all yeah. that. So yeah. people were outraged that you brought that up. I didn't hear that. I'm not that worried about it in that anytime you say anything that gets any attention or traction, there's always going to be haters. Kind of the most common response is some rendition of shut up communist, which is hilarious because driving is one of the most subsidized, top-down government mandated things we do. It, it is, you know, wanting walkable communities where there's a minimum of interference in what people can build on their own property is like the opposite of communist. It's very, it's a very free market idea, actually. Yeah, I mean, I'm not that worried about the haters. They almost never have traction and they almost are never making cogent arguments. Like if somebody came at me with like a very thoughtful, substantive concern, I would probably be concerned about that and, and really want to grapple with it and, and have a thoughtful reply. But it's almost never that. And I think it's a reaction to a suggestion that the status quo is not the best Thing. Well, you're right. If someone said, how do disabled people see those lights? Well, then you might say, absolutely. Let's let's figure out a traffic lane for them. But let's not take away the choice of other people of how they choose to see those lights. Well, and, and it's really interesting that you'd say that. So so I would say that the the three groups most frequently invoked to defend you know, automobile hegemony are the poor the disabled, and children. And those are the three groups most limited and harmed by it. In the case of the poor, poor people are less likely to own cars and more likely to be hit, hurt, and killed by them. 
because our country concentrated highways through low-income neighborhoods uh, at the middle of the last century, you know, with exclusionary zoning, they're forced into really distant suburbs, you know, exurbs and things like that, kind of a drive till you qualify. And so basing our transportation on cars really makes them vulnerable. Cars are extremely expensive. And if cars go wrong, they're extremely expensive to maintain. That's a terrible justification. Um, The disabled, and, and again, I'm not disabled, but I have beloved relatives who have become disabled in the last couple of years, and we give rides on a regular basis to some uh, a group of disabled adults. A third of disabilities preclude driving entirely. You just cannot drive if you have those disabilities. And then if you're on social security insurance, it is very difficult to afford a car. And so the group of people who are disabled, who are most visible and most vocal, tend to be those who are wealthy and healthy enough to drive, but can't walk very far. And that's a group I'm very concerned about. Like, we should have a a transportation system where they have mobility, but it should not come at the direct expense of all of the other disabled people who cannot drive or who cannot afford to drive. Uh, And then the third group that gets invoked a lot is kids. Cars have been the leading cause of child death by far for decades. Uh, They generally kill two to three times as many kids as all pediatric cancers combined. So I don't think that for the children is a particularly compelling argument either. A bunch of kids running around in the dark at a light festival would just be a joy to watch. But being in the backseat of your car, looking out the window is really not the way to experience that, even though sometimes that's what you do and, you know, you can't help it. But if we had it, a system set up that allowed children to get out and run through those areas and play, then it really would be beautiful to watch. That is a perfect example. So if you think about a street closed off to traffic and my my city has areas like this, little kids are running around everywhere. You cannot let little kids run around anywhere a car might come through. If a car might come through, little kids cannot run around. It's not safe. And so I think we really underappreciate the degree to which prioritizing the throughput of cars displaces all these vulnerable people. Well, Bella, hopefully the haters who responded to your tweet will at least open their eyes. Maybe it doesn't have to be this way. They still might send you a hateful tweet, but they might be thinking in the back of their mind next time, hey, maybe I'll get out of the car and and walk through these lights or you know, find some other way besides just sitting in my car. And honestly, it's not even the haters who like, you know, again, if somebody is like super hardcore on one, one end of the spectrum, I don't think my tweet is going to change their mind, but what I hope it does is there's always that middle group of people who's thoughtful, who's reasonable and curious. I hope that they'll rethink automobile dependence and the real costs of that. I think that's what I'm trying to help people understand. Like it feels convenient. It feels cheap because it's so subsidized, but really it comes at these enormous costs. Right. Well, that's what we're trying to do on the show all the time is open people's eyes to this crazy world that we've built and are not getting out of with climate change, you know, hovering above us. It's time that we make some of those changes. Uh, Bella Chu, thank you so much for coming back on Bike Talk and uh, sharing your tweets and and your expertise with us. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, but really, I got to say, to listen to you 
and to have my eyes opened each time after speaking to you. Thank you, Bella. It's so fun to be here. Thank you for having me. So that was Bella Chu, who directs Data Core of Population Health Sciences at Stanford University. You know, when Bella talked about these drivers driving through a Christmas light show and happily waiting <laughs> bumper to bumper, it was ironic. There's yeah. there's an irony there. Yeah. You know what drives drivers crazy, Nick? Is having to slow down when they're speeding down the road because there's a bicycle in front of them. But you know what doesn't drive them crazy? Waiting in line at In-N-Out or Starbucks. They sit in their car and they wait in line while they get in-car service, right? Well, I don't know if we should always be saying they and like all drivers, but True. there's a contradiction. Exactly. Well, today we have uh, with us Peter Flax, and I'm sure most of our listeners know who Peter is, but he's a journalist living in LA and he's the former editor-in-chief at Bicycling Magazine. And he came to our attention again because of a tweet or an X that he put out. Peter Flax, welcome back to Bike Talk. Thanks. It's great to be here. And uh, it was in and outs first location in the state of Idaho in Meridian, which is just outside of Boise. And the tweet I, I mentioned was uh, it was reportedly an eight-hour line to get burgers at In-N-Out. And I just pointed out the irony of how, um, as someone who rides around LA all the time, how if somebody has to wait five seconds to safely pass me, it, they act as though it, like their civil liberties have been violated. <laughs> and yet um, they'll wait a third of a day to get a pretty good burger and pretty mediocre fries. And the tweet took off and I got lots of fun, angry interactions with, with people who love to drive and took offense to uh, the irony that I pointed out. I very much understand and am always struck by and often talk about how drivers feel like if there's a bike in front of them, there shouldn't be, and they've got to get in front of it and they're willing to risk someone else's life to do it. But uh, in and out fries, you're calling mediocre? Oh, totally. Yeah. Why I, are you comparing? I, What's a good fry? McDonald's. Uh, McDonald's right. fries are quite a bit better. I, I think in and out fries are almost unsalted and yeah, they're just kind of soggy and it's just not a great French fry. Agree I'm, willing to to, I'm willing to, yeah, that's <laughs> fine. I uh, really dislike that my children still like to get Chick-fil-A, but the waffle fries at Chick-fil-A just are a hundred times better than the French fries at, at In-N-Out. And that's just a, a stark reality. I'm afraid to tell you, Nick. I haven't had the Chick-fil-A fries, so I can't speak to that. Yeah, it's probably a good move to avoid that brand. But anyway, we digress. Oh, I don't know so, about that. <laughs> You got some feedback from the usual suspects to your post? Yeah. When a, a tweet goes viral like that, you wind up just hearing from people who share really different ideas. And I got a lot of responses from the kind of folks that have American flags in their bios and, you know, kind of this MAGA crowd, I'd say. And they like took my tweet as like yet another example of an insufferable cyclist complaining about people just doing what makes them happy. Like, what's the problem? If waiting online at In-N-Out makes me happy, what's your problem? Are you a, a vegan and have a problem with 
hamburgers and oh you guys just keep riding through red lights and following your own rules and now you want to tell us like where we should get our family dinner yeah really predictable trolling and i will admit that i draw an irrational amount of pleasure in chatting with uh those kinds of folks totally i like enjoy the repartee and and hopefully five percent of them are really smart alex who um, are some fun to debate with there's a certain section of that population that does look at that and go god you know that's a good point maybe next time i'm behind a biker maybe i won't freak out and try to you know zip past him to get to the stop sign where he or she will will pass me again there are many thousands of people who liked my tweet and I got lots of positive feedback, but I think, like, I didn't convince anybody new, I doubt. Those are already people in the bike culture or adjacent to bike culture, or just people with, um, you know, normal humanistic tendencies or people that enjoy the ironies in our life. A lot of people that I interacted with, at the end of the day, they just hate the idea that bike riders are on city streets. And so there's just no getting around that root grievance that they don't really feel like we have a rightful place to be on the road. So trying to make an irony um, related to that just offends them completely. The people that we're talking about, like MAGA, don't they always think that the leftists are trying to take something away from them? And in this yeah. case, it would be road space. Road space or just the freedom to decide where and how to get food, right? Like the objection to the 15-minute city is related to this, where they feel like there's something oppressive about thinking about what would make their communities more pleasant for most people. And so they feel like, well, if I want to like get in my Escalade and drive to the In-N-Out and idle for two hours to get burgers, then who are you, Mr. Bike Hobbyist, to tell me what to do? You know, it's not just in and out. I see lines of cars waiting, you know, for the drive through at Starbucks or any other place. I, I went to the Grove last night, which is a big pedestrian center. In fact, people love it because you you can't drive at the Grove. You know, you you walk around. It's a it's like Disneyland sort of. But the line of cars waiting to get into the parking ramp at the Grove went around two blocks. It was amazing. And they were just sitting in their cars waiting to get in to then drive slowly through the parking ramp so they could enjoy a pedestrian space. It always astounds me. Like I probably wind up getting my kids fooded in and out once or twice a month. And it always seems so straightforward to me that I pull up. And if it's a really short line at the drive-thru, I do the drive-thru. And if it's, well, I don't know, 20 cars or more, I always like looking at what the last car in line is and parking my car and going inside and getting the food and getting back in my car and taking some significant pleasure that that red escape is is still like seven cars from getting served. But people often feel like the car is like their living room and that they're like in their posh personal space and they don't want to get out and like touch shoulders with other people. And it's quite a phenomenon how much people like to sit in their cars. Some of the size of those cars, it is their living room. 100%. Is that schadenfreude when you see the, the escape? Yeah, I guess so. You know, in the same way that we talk about how cars are so impatient to pass, I feel the same kind of emotion when somebody impatiently and dangerously zooms around me instead of waiting five seconds and then 
30 seconds later, we're at the same red light. There's an irrationality to the kind of impatience that people feel that they don't seem to be aware of. And so short-circuiting that by walking or riding my bike or just parking my car and going into an establishment, yeah, that gives me some pleasure that I'm not afraid to admit. On a few times in the show, we've tried to suggest or ask people if there is a political divide when it comes to people's feelings about, you know, allowing non-car transportation space on the road. And a lot of times people say, no, there's the left and the right, they all have a problem seeing beyond, you know, the car designed streets. But really there is a difference, right? There are really right-wing folks that like to get around on bikes and are clued into those issues. And there are really progressive people who are super attached to their cars. But I'd say in, in general, um, the kinds of things we're talking about, like tilt right of center, there are more people that I come in contact with who feel emotionally defensive about their driving preferences, they're going to usually be on the conservative side more often than about not. About their right to wait in line. <laughs> their right to do whatever they want to do in their car. There's like a libertarian angle to it where it's just this freedom that they feel like is this American privilege to just do whatever they want in their motor vehicles. Like I, all the time, people in person or on social media, you know, like to call bike riders uh, entitled. Like, and I'm, I'm always like, I just, I'm entitled to like go where I want to go and get home alive. Like I'm entitled to that. And, and at the same time, they feel like they want to dictate who can and can't be on the road. And even something as simple as a three foot passing law, they feel like is an infraction of their rights to just travel freely That because it might mean that they have to wait 10 seconds for um, traffic going the other way to have a gap so they can pass me safely. It's it's like a religion. Right. You know, I always say, don't blame me, you know, blame the car coming the other way that is keeping you from passing me if you want to. Uh, especially in a place like Los Angeles, you know, where there are more than 10 million people living and there's, you know, a lot of congestion on the road. And like, I can kind of understand why they perceive bike riders as competition for this scarce resource. So like on an intellectual level, I can see where some of it comes from, but then I am just talking to them and I'm like, you know, I'm doing something that's legal and I'm just trying to like get to my destination alive. Do you really have like an objection to that? And the answer often is, yeah, I have a problem with that because I just don't think any of the pavement should be set aside for you. There are, you know, less than 2% of people on the road who are on bikes and we shouldn't give, you know, 10% of a roadway to that. And they don't see the the irony of how they just continually do things to make it unsafe and then point out how few people do it because it's, it's, it's like those two things are related, right? That you have to be more brave than you should be to do a lot of bike riding in a city. And there's all sorts of irony flowing through this that a lot of these folks don't perceive or agree with. Giving people space to ride their bike is really about creating a freedom of choice. You know, Americans have the choice to choose the tool with which they can do the errand that they need to run easiest, cheapest yeah. even maybe. Yeah, we've learned in the last 10 years that there's this libertarian 
quality to a lot of folks in our culture who like want the entitlements that they want and then want to oppose the entitlements that they don't want, right? Like people who are mortally offended by student loan forgiveness and then they pocketed six figures on a PPE loan, like it, right, you know, right. that kind of thing all, all the time. You look at what's happening in New York where they've imposed congestion pricing and people from New Jersey and Long Island are uh, outraged that um, someone is trying to charge them a market rate to have access to the biggest city in the country, which is often paralyzed by congestion. And, yeah. and so they feel like, you know, they're opposed to that because it, it just doesn't, it's, it, it's taking away an entitlement that they personally enjoy. To have access to the biggest city in the world in their own private automobile, rather than by bike or by foot or by transit. That kind of irony feels like it flows through our culture 24-7. And I think why that particular tweet about In-N-Out struck a chord is it you know casts a bright light on that divide of like where your values are on these issues and whether you feel like this freedom to get in your car and do whatever you want whenever you want is some sort of like American or ideal or not. Right. Well, I think your tweet did a great job of pointing that out. And I'm glad it got so much feedback. Even some of the negative stuff, I think is funny. Oh, we didn't read the negative stuff. Yeah, I could. Uh, some of them are just funny. Uh, right. Someone named A's McNasty just wrote back, get on the sidewalk, hippie. Uh, <laughs> Get Off My Lawn, which is a great Twitter handle, said, what an absolutely bizarre comparison. Daryl Woodman wrote, take your bikes and bike lanes to Europe, bud. Gene Manon Rowland, who I wound up having like a longer conversation and has like an American flag next to her name, wrote just, I don't get the hate. No one is making you go there and wait. I think there was some light trolling there, but but just like the idea of just not even understanding where the irony in pointing it out comes from. She just see, feels it, it's like leftist woke cancel culture telling everybody what they should or shouldn't do. Like, she's like, why are you saying there's something ridiculous about waiting in a long line at In-N-Out? Like, that's my choice. You know, if, pe if people want to wait a long time to get fast food in their car, it's not like I'm in favor of passing legislation to make it illegal, but I mean, at least have a sense of humor and just like acknowledge that there's something ridiculous about it, particularly if you're going to then get out of in and out and beep at some bike rider because they delayed you for five seconds, right? right? There's something hilarious and scary about that. Jake wrote, I never wait for those narcissistic clown bikers. Believe me, they get the F out of my way. Plus, I love in and out I just yeah. love these people. <laughs> if I didn't have like a job, I could spend hours just jousting with right. these people. And partly just because I want other folks in bike culture to push back on these clowns that, that um, you know, that, that, that if somebody wants to like step out of their little bubble and, and, and start complaining about bike riders, then, you know, I feel like it's my, partly my little duty to put them in their place if I can. And I would also argue that there is a negative cost to society for, you know, 200 cars waiting eight hours in a line with their with their ignitions, you know, running with the car and the exhaust running. That that also has to be pointed out. Yeah. I mean, and again, if you talk about all of the contradictions, you know, one of the chestnut cliches when people are 
complaining about a road diet or a bike lane being put in is this idea that they create more traffic, which creates more idling, which somehow creates more air pollution. And yet they then will sit on a fast food line with their car idling, like while they could just, again, park in a parking space and walk inside and like interact with some human beings for a way shorter amount of time and then get back with their lives. But it's just not how it goes. I wondered if there's any research showing how long of a car line people are willing to wait in per block they would have to walk if they parked somewhere farther. I bet you the numbers would be really depressing. People are extremely attached to their cars and extremely lazy. You see it all the time. Like I don't personally have a car, but my wife and son have cars. And I, you know, I go to um, Ralph's and Home Depot, just like everybody else. And I'm always amazed that if you're willing to park on the far edge of the parking lot, how there's always a million spaces. And I just enjoy being able to park quickly and then walk for four minutes to get into the store. And then there's always this huge cohort of people that are just circling the parking lot right near the entrance to the store where they'd rather invest 15 minutes getting like the world's best parking space rather than walk five minutes. Like at a mall, like again, if you go to the top floor of a multi-story parking structure, there's always a million spots, but people will like sit there with their hazards on for 15 minutes waiting for the dream spot to emerge. Right. Well, Peter, thanks for the tweet. Can you give out your Twitter handle or your X handle, whatever it's called? Yeah, I refuse to call it X, but you can Good. call it that if you want. My uh, no. Twitter handle is um, PFLAX1, so P-F-L-A-X and the number one. Right. Well, Peter Flax, thanks for coming back on Bike Talk. And thanks for poking the bear. My pleasure. I hope you guys have a great holiday. You too. So that was Peter Flax talking about his tweet. Peter likes it when people in the bike culture push back on the people who are complaining about bike riders. So he feels it's his duty to put them in their place. So when you're on Twitter and you see PFLAX1 post something, give it a thumbs up, give it a like, give it a comment about you know putting some of those ridiculous people in their place. Um, yeah. But sticking with our theme on irony, Nick, next up is an old interview. Well, not old. It's just a couple of years old that Don Ward did of, of Midnight Riders with Don Shoup, Donald Shoup, about the high cost of free parking. And I think that in itself is a little bit ironic, don't you? Yeah, the high cost of free parking. That's irony right there. <laughs> That's You know what that is? That's irony. That's ironic. We have a very legendary guest, Nick. We have a we have a legend on today, right? Yes, we yeah. do. The legendary Donald Shoup. He's a trailblazer in the field of parking at UCLA, where he is the distinguished research professor in the Department of Urban Planning. He's the author of The High Cost of Free Parking, and he basically has a lot of devoted followers. They're called the Shoupistas. And I'm in the Facebook group, um, so I feel like kind of like a shoepista. I don't know if you need like to pass some other tests or credentials to become one, but uh, we're honored to have you on, Donald. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for inviting me. You are basically famous for some very controversial uh, thoughts on car parking. A lot of people just automatically assume the best thing possible is more car parking and the opposite is true 
is what you say in a lot of cases, right? I think that we have far too much parking, and most of it is free to the driver. Everyone wants to park free, uh, including you and me. But just because the driver doesn't pay for parking doesn't mean the cost go, goes away. The cost is still there. Somebody has to pay for it, and that somebody is everybody. That everything you buy, uh, a, a little bit of the money is siphoned off to pay for the free parking. When you go to a grocery store or a shopping mall or any place that offers free parking, that it has to be paid for by the, by the, uh, the store. And a little bit of the, of the cost gets shifted to, the, to your bill. Even if you didn't drive, even people who are too poor to own a car have to pay for parking so that richer people who drive to the place can park free. Uh, and I think that's an uh, injustice that is quite transparent when, when you explain it. But that isn't enough to get people to say, oh, yes, we should all pay for parking. Uh, you need to go much farther than to point out that, that everybody is paying for parking, even if they don't drive a car. I think it's really hard for people to wrap their heads around this concept that car parking costs money, that it is not worth it in a lot of cases or makes life more difficult for everybody in a lot of ways. Um, they're not ready to hear that yet, right? So... No, I, I, and I don't know that you should expect people to do that. I mean, there's so many things that we ought to be paying attention to, and we just don't have the time. It's, it's, economists call that rational ignorance, is that we're ignorant about so many things about judges who are being elected. We don't look and see, look at their credentials. We just either don't vote or we vote by party line or that we, we just can't pay attention to everything and not everybody can pay attention to parking. But getting back to my elevator uh, explanation is that I basically refer to three reforms, I think, is when they go together will make life a lot better for people who ride bikes and for people who don't ride bikes. Um, the first one is to charge the right price uh, for on-street parking, for curb parking. Uh, who could argue with the idea of charging the right price? But by right price, I mean the lowest price the city can charge is still have one or two open spaces on every block. And on many blocks in residential areas, that would be zero. But on crowded areas where the uh, parking is scarce, it would be the, the price would have to go up so that you would always see one or two open spaces on every block, which is what drivers want to see, of course, and you can't say there's a shortage of parking. And then getting back to your question about the politics, to make this uh, uh, popular, uh, some cities uh, devote the, all the meter revenue, or, or at least some of it, to pay for added public services on the metered blocks. That if you have parking meters, you get extra services. And if you don't have parking meters, you don't. Uh, so um, some of these services would be uh, cleaning the sidewalks and fisking the sidewalks. Some cities give free Wi-Fi to everybody who is um, uh, 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 on the, on that block in that area, and uh, some cities get free transit passes to everybody who works in the in the metered area. So if you if you're an employer in an area with parking meters, all your employees get a free transit pass at no cost to you. It's not a cost of the taxpayer. It's not a cost of the employer. It's the cost of the person who uses the parking, and often that's somebody who comes from outside the neighborhood. 
uh, I think, uh, uh, the best example of this is right here in Pasadena, uh, that you're too young to know, but old, old Pasadena used to be a, a commercial slum, um, that it was in a, a terrible shape. Uh, that everything above the ground floor was empty and a lot of the things on the ground floor were, were empty. Um, mm. uh, but it, 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 there, there were wonderful buildings in terrible condition. And the, the city had, had a vision of what it could be, uh, which is what it is now, but they had no way to pay for it. Um, uh, they were gonna put in parking meters uh, in the area. The merchants said, no way, it'll chase away the few customers we have. And they argued for a couple of years and finally they said, all right, if we put in the parking meters, we'll spend all the money to replace all the sidewalks in Pasadena, in old Pasadena, <laughs> all the sidewalks that have parking meters. And we'll put in new street trees, uh, new historic street furniture. We'll clean up the alleys. Um, we'll put the wires underground. And the merchant said, well, why didn't you tell us that? Let's do that. Let's run the meters <laughs> to midnight. Let's run them on Sunday. Because oh. they knew that this was a way to pay for what they uh, wanted for their neighborhood. And now it's the, one of the most popular tourist destinations in, in, in Southern California. 20 or 30,000 people on a weekend come to walk around, or did before the pandemic, walk around in old Pasadena. And a complete mixture of ages and races and, and uh, everything you want to think of in terms of diversity. You'll find them walking around in old Pasadena. And um, who walks around in alleys in neighborhoods? Well, they, they, they took all the trash and dead animals and things like that of the alleys. They repaved them. They planted street trees. And now all the alleys are walkways for, for outdoor restaurants. And it was all paid for, all the public aspects of it were paid for by the, the parking meters. And then once the city did what only the city can do, which is provide all these new public services, then the private property owners restored their properties, which is an expensive uh, uh, proposition, as you can imagine, if you have to follow the national standards on historic preservation. And it didn't Did, pay to restore their buildings before the meters went in and the, the public services got there. It, it didn't pay because the rents weren't sufficient to, to, to compensate. But now uh, the rents will, will, will compensate for historic preservation. So I think get, to make them popular, uh, park meters popular, if you uh, have people identifying it with what, what they want. Um, and I think around the world, if, if uh, park meters become associated with or identified with uh, a free Wi-Fi, even in very low income countries or, maybe countries, or even especially in low income countries, they'll say, I like this, because most people in a low income uh, uh, city don't own a car. Um, and then the third uh, part of my uh, proposal after the, charging the right price for curb parking and spending the revenue in the right way is to remove all street parking requirements. Um, that's another thing that essentially happened in, in, in Old Town Pasadena. That how could all of those restaurants open up in, 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 in buildings without any parking? Uh, say Los Angeles would never allow that, or most cities would never allow that. They say, well, where is the required parking? Because you can't use a building um, uh, for any new use unless you have the spaces required for that use. So how did we how did we get here? How did we get to the point where there's all this parking required everywhere? 
Well, I think it started around uh, the, the, not in the 1930s. That's when the first ones were, were, were established. And it, at the time, the politicians thought it worked like a miracle because it didn't cost the, um, the city anybody and it didn't cost the, the, the citizens, I mean, the, 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 uh, uh, the people who, who went to the stores, it didn't seem to cost them anything. Nobody knew who paid for the parking. But, um, and there was a terrific shortage of parking because they weren't charging anything on the street. Um, if you're gonna have free on-street parking, you have to have off-street parking requirements or everybody will say, how did you let this restaurant open when there's no parking? Um, so I think that from the 1930s to the 19, well, it stopped by World War II, but in the 1950s, it was the most, I've never heard of any planning regulation that spread faster around the country than off-street parking requirements. Because wow. they, hide, they hide the cost of free parking. Uh, they hide it in the cost of developing the property. And then that, that cost gets shifted to, to everybody. Why did it spread so fast? Because everybody was just super excited about cars. It was like a new technology. Well, like. Well, no, not technology. Most people don't even know that minimum parking requirements exist. Uh, well, I mean cars, you know, like cars. Yeah. So people were excited, and, and, and that is why this spread across the country so fast. Like, Well, the cars had already spread. America was, was uh, automobilized by the 1920s. Uh, mm. And e even in Los Angeles, by 1920, more people were coming to downtown by car than by mass transit. Um, mm. Okay. So I think that it, it was, uh, it, it seemed to be uh, a free parking, a, a way to get free parking. Everybody wanted free parking. It was good for, for, for drivers, obviously. So, so I think if, once you, you know, have if, them, it's hard to get rid of them. Because it's the built environment. Well, no, because uh, the, the residents will say, you can't allow this uh, office building near our neighborhood without parking because they'll park in our neighborhood. You know, that they'll, they'll, they'll overcrowd so for parking. How do you get past that? How do you sell this to people? You know, well, the way you sell it to people is to have these parking benefit districts, like in Old Pasadena, so that you start charging for curb parking and you start spending the revenue in the best way. They 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 earn about a one and a half million dollars a year. Uh, they spend um, a lot on nightly uh, street sweeping and sidewalk cleaning, removing all graffiti, and. Right, right. And they have a lot of you know Christmas decorations, and they they do everything like a, a business improvement district would do, but it's all paid for by the parking meter. So that's the way to make it, it popular, and to say, well, well, we don't need these off-street parking requirements anymore uh, because there's available curb parking, and they built a public parking garages with ground floor retail that were also paid for by the parking meters. They did that in Pasadena with parking on top of ground store retail? Yes, the, you've probably been there that when you go to old Pasadena, there are three or four public parking garages. And when you walk along the sidewalk, you don't even know it's a parking structure because there are restaurants and travel shops and, and, and any kind of retail. 
That is a very nice walkable place now. That's, they did a good job with that. Okay, well, you, your initial question is how do you make these parking meters popular on the right pricing? The way to do it is to do what Pasadena does. Every penny that goes into the parking meters comes right out the other side and cleans the sidewalk and trims the street trees and removes graffiti. And Where else besides business districts should we be doing this? In big cities and permit parking districts, most of the crowded areas and residential areas that have permit parking. But it's uh, in, in LA, it, it, I think it's about $35 a year, which is what, 10 cents a day for parking in Koreatown, you know, hmm. and it, which hmm. is one of the hardest places in Los Angeles to park. Um, so I think the, the better way to do that would be to charge market prices for the permits, that if you want a permit to park on this wildly expensive land, you have to pay for it. Um, and that money would be used to pay for the benefits. I, I did estimate for San Francisco, if they charged the, the market price for on-street parking in the neighborhood uh, around the Fairmont Hotel in Chinatown, they could give a free transit pass for everybody who lives of the district and wow. only about 10 percent of the people own a car so if it came to a vote say well do you think we should charge market prices for our on-street parking in san francisco where housing is so expensive and land is so expensive if we just charge drivers for parking on the street we could give every single person who of all ages a free transit pass so i think if it were it came to an election which it hasn't had yet i i think the people would say well i'd like to this idea of it's fair that drivers should pay for what they're using. I mean, we didn't become a great nation by being a bunch of freeloaders. Well, thanks for doing the show, Taylor. The next time we do it, it'll be the new year, 2024. I'm excited about that. Ride safe. Hi, this is Stacy with a bike thought. Oh, the irony. People will idle in their car for hours for fast food, but won't wait a few seconds to safely pass a cyclist or to have their trip take a few minutes more to make slow and no car streets for walking and biking. Drivers insist upon free parking everywhere they go. And the one that really got me recently was the New York City tech founder who said biking is for kids, but truthfully, it is only for the brave adults in most places. I look forward to the day when these ironies are erased. This episode of Bike Talk is sponsored by the law offices of Pocras and De Los Reyes, with offices in Los Angeles and Bakersfield and serving all of Southern California. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Get on your bike. Sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals. And ride it all around, ride it all around. Sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and run
Oh, catch yourself a bike. Oh, catch yourself a bike.